just to announce that um, this morning we'll start a new series called The Way to Victory. Uh, we started this morning and that will lead us uh, to the Easter Sunday, which is the Resurrection Sunday. But before we go to the Bible reading, Yolanda will be doing our Bible reading. It's taken from Luke chapter 22 from verse 39 all the way to 46. Luke 22, 39 to 46. Thanks, Yolanda. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46. As he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Yolanda, for the Bible reading. Let's bow our head and pray as we come to God's word. So, Jesus, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of Sunday. Thank you that it's a great opportunity for us to come together as your people to sing your praises, to speak to you as we pray, but also to hear from you as your word is being opened. And at this time, Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Many of us might be here this morning with anxious hearts, because of the challenges and struggles of life that we are all going through. But Lord, we pray that as we meet, as your word is being opened, Lord, you'll give us your peace. We need you today. We need you every day. And Lord, as your servant, I pray that the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable to you. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Where are we in the Gospel of Luke? How does our passage fit in the Gospel of Luke? Luke, who was a doctor and the travel companion of the Apostle Paul, structured his account of Jesus' life in five major sections. Section 1 runs from Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. And that's the introduction He tells us why he wrote the gospel, why he wrote this account of Jesus, so that we might have certainty of the things we've been taught. And then section 2, from verse 5 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 52 of chapter 2. There we have the account of the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. Here we see that the arrival of Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises. And then we have section 3, which runs from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50. And here we have Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his teachings, 
his miracles that he performed. And then you have section 4, which runs from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to chapter 19, verse 44. And here we have the journey to Jerusalem. This is the central section in the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus deliberately starts his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem, and there he will be betrayed. He will be crucified, and he will die. And finally, we have section 5, which runs from chapter 19, verse 45, up to the end of the book, which is chapter 24, verse 53. And here, Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. His crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Our passage this morning, which is from Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46, is taken from this last section of Luke's gospel. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has arrived. He has just had the Passover meal also known as the Last Supper with his disciples. And now he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount Olives, to pray. We read in verse 39 that it was his custom to go to that place for prayer. Once he arrives at the Mount of Olives, he instructs his disciples twice in verse 40 and verse 46 to pray so that they don't fall into temptation. But what happens with the disciples? Well, they fall asleep. And maybe you are here, you're like, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who falls asleep when it, it comes to pray. If the disciples fell asleep, who am I not to fall asleep? Well, we won't mention any names. But the disciples, they fell asleep. And then Jesus walks a bit further into the garden, and he begins to pray. And here, Luke wants us to see the importance of prayer in Jesus' life. So Jesus lived a life of prayer. Many times we read in the gospel that he will withdraw from the crowd, from his disciples, and go to a quiet place to pray. But what we have here in our passage is the most agonizing prayer Jesus ever prayed. It's the most agonizing prayer in his life. Let me give us the roadmap as we dig into our passage to help us understand our passage. We'll try and answer two main questions. Question one, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? What do we learn about him? And question two, how does that change our attitude towards Jesus? So question one, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? Question two, how does the learning about Jesus change my attitude towards him? One, what do we learn about Jesus? We learn that Jesus is in total control of time and circumstances. So when we read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one thing that is obvious about Jesus and his ministry is that he is in control. He has the full power 
Of course, he is God in the flesh. We can only expect him to be in control. He performs great miracles at the right time. Jesus' timing is always the right time. He's not rushed into things. He heals people. He raised the dead. He feed more than 5,000 people. He speaks with authority and without fear. We see that when he speaks, they woes to the Pharisees and lawyers in Luke 11 and verse 37. We also see him uh, speaking with authority and acting courageously when he clears the temple in Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. He fearlessly heads to Jerusalem where he knows that death is waiting for him. During the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 and verse 44, before he starts his journey, he predicts his death. Short time later, chapter 9, verse 51, we read that he starts his journey to Jerusalem, which will lead him to the crucifixion. Near Jericho, before his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in 1831-33, once again, he fearlessly foretells his death. During the Last Supper, Luke chapter 22 and verse 14, When he is in the upper room with his disciples, he eats the Passover meal with them, knowing very well that shortly after, he is the Passover lamb who is going to be sacrificed on that cross. What's the point here? The point is that when you see Jesus, you see someone who has got power. When you see Jesus, you see someone who has courage. When you see Jesus, you see someone who is without fear. From the beginning of his ministry up to this point in the garden, you see Jesus who is in total control. Jesus in whom there is no fear. But now we get into the garden of Gethsemane and there is a change. Jesus is agonizing. He is in deep anguish. He is deeply distressed. When we read chapter 22 from verse 43 to 44, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus is in anguish. He is in the anguish so that the angel had to come to him to strengthen him. And the question is, why this surprise fear suddenly? As we read earlier on, we knew that Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem and there he will be betrayed, he will be crucified. Does that reality only sink into him now? Is Jesus now afraid of what is waiting for him? Is he now afraid of death? Well, when we go through history, history is full of people who were sentenced to death and executed but did not show any fear. I will give us an example. 
an Italian philosopher by the name of Giordano Bruno in the late 1500s and early 1600s was considered heretic. And on February 8th of the year 1600, when the death sentence was formally read to him, he addressed his judges saying, Perhaps you fear in passing judgment on me. Perhaps your fear in passing judgment on me is greater than mine in receiving it. Not long after, he was taken to the Campo de Fiori, his tongue in a gag, and burned alive. So you have normal people who face death head up. They had no fear. And here you wonder, what has just happened to Jesus in the garden? Someone who was without fear, who was in control. What has happened to him? As he is praying, instead of finding comfort, instead of finding the, the shalom, as he is speaking to his heavenly father, as he is in the communion with the father, Suddenly, he is in such agony that an angel is to come to strengthen him. Why is he in such agony? Why the fear? His sweat was like great drops of blood as he prayed. This is what Luke, who was the doctor, is describing to us. It really means that it was intense in that garden as Jesus was praying. And maybe you are here, sitting here, and you're asking yourself, Jesus being God, divine, and courageous, it does not make sense now that he fears what is going to happen to him, the painful death, to the point of an angel coming to him to strengthen him. Jesus who has been fearless, Jesus who has been unmoved, who has been bold during all his ministry life, suddenly... He is weak. Maybe clearly he was just like any other man. In fact, even less because some other die their head up. And we shouldn't make any big thing about him. Well, then comes verse 42. Verse 42 gives us an idea of the cause of this agony that Jesus went through. Verse 42 reads as follow: Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We come across this phrase, this cup. The language of cup is used in the Old Testament by prophets as an association of suffering, judgment, and God's wrath against sin that the wicked have to drink. Simply put, the cup is symbolic of the punishment of God. And no one wants to be on that side to endure God's punishment, God's wrath. So we understand here that the cup Jesus prays about is full of God's holy hatred of sin. As Jesus is praying, he begins to test what will be demanded of him on that cross when he dies for our sins to save us. 
it becomes clear what he's going to endure on the cross. He knew he was going to die. Death was not a problem or an issue. But his death, in his death, he was going to receive the wages of the sin in full. He knew that death was the result of God's judgment. And he was going to bear God's judgment on him. Remember, Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. He knew no sin. Suddenly, he would become sin. Suddenly, he would carry on him all the sins of the whole world to quench God's wrath. He will carry upon him your sin, my sin, past, present, and future. Him who never knew sin before. He will become our substitute substitute when he dies. He will operate the beautiful exchange. We are the ones supposed to die for our sins. But he will take all the sins upon himself so that we don't have to die for our sins. Now we understand why he was in such agony. It was unbearable. We learn that Jesus was in total control. What also do we learn from this passage? We learn that Jesus trusts the Father. And we see that in the prayer that he prays. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. First of all, he says, Father. He addresses God as his Father. Dearest Daddy, to put it in other words. It shows the relationship that he has with his Father. But it also reveals the character of God who is his Father to his children. This is the Father who loves The father who is the giver, the father who is the provider. That's why he can pray to him. He's the provider of all good things. The father has never refused anything to his son, Jesus. That is why Jesus lived a life of prayer while he was here on earth. And the son enjoyed the communion with the father in prayer. This also means that the son lived in a life of submission to his father. He was a real man here on earth, 100% God, 100% human being. He enjoyed to submit to the will of his father. Secondly, what do we learn from this prayer? If you are willing, says Jesus, remove this cup. This is the son acknowledging that the father is all-powerful. If you are willing, of course, he can only remove it because he can. He's God. He's powerful. The Father can do anything. Nothing is impossible to him. So Jesus praying to the Father shows that he was a real man. It affirms his humanity. He had needs. He had concern. He had to express himself to his Father who is in heaven. He did not want to disobey to his father, but he asked if there is another way to save sinners, people like yourself and myself. 
would you please remove this cup? This is a pure plea from the son because this cup is so heavy. This cup is so unbearable. He's asking, he's pleading with his father. What do we learn next from this prayer? Nevertheless, your will be done. Jesus wanted God's will more than anything. And in fact, Jesus became God's will. Jesus' prayer was heard by the Father, but his request was denied. And this is hard for us as men to understand, especially when we pray. Your will be done. That phrase is very heavy. Many other times when I'm praying for my personal needs, or maybe I'm praying for issues related to the ministries that I'm involved in, or maybe when we are doing a pastoral visit and there you stand next to a person who's dying, and you are praying to God, you are asking God to heal the person, but then you remember that you have to say, God, but your will be done. It is hard. It doesn't come naturally. And when you say that, it may sound as if you are being indecisive in your request to the Father when you ask God's will to be done. But the truth is, the opposite is true. This is a prayer of faith, a prayer of trust. When you ask God's will to be done, it means you trust Him, you trust the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. I'm just a finite human being, but you, Father, you are infinite. You know better than I know. All I can see is what is close to my nose, but Lord, you can see it all. You've got a bigger picture. I trust in you. Your will be done, not mine. This is a request that shows trust, that shows faith in the Father. Whatever you do, God, will be best. Your will be done. And we can see that after Jesus prayed this prayer, after he said, your will be done, after he finished, Jesus was back to the fearless state that he was in before. We will see that in the way he will handle everything, all the events up to his crucifixion on that death, on that cross. He went to Gethsemane in agony. He came out of it with peace in his soul because he had talked to his heavenly father. What is prayer? Prayer is us talking to our heavenly father. Jesus is in control. He was not captured, but he handed over himself to the people who will be crucifying him. Strength, courage is back to him. He was absolutely supreme in full control of the events that will lead him to his death after his prayer. What do we learn about prayer here again? We pray because we are in a relationship with God who is our Father. This Father of ours is all-powerful. We can ask him anything we want as long as we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It is a prayer of faith. 
and trust to this God who has everything in control. Sometimes we get things we ask for, sometimes we don't. But we are always heard by our Father. And as a church, we believe in prayer. We take prayer very seriously in the life of our church. That's why at the beginning of every term, we will come together as a church to pray to God who is our Father, to commit the term and the work here at Christ Church Midran into his hands and ask him to use us and ask his will to be fulfilled in the life of the church here. That's why we have a group of prayer chain, 50 plus people who are committed to pray for the needs of our church family, for our church, of our country week after week. That is why we have a group of people every morning, every Sunday at 9, they are in the prayer room to pray for the service that is about to happen. That's why after church we have prayer counselors in the prayer room ready to pray with people. We take prayer very seriously. That's why in every meeting, every gathering that we have, including our services, our life group meetings, we always pray. Why? Because we are in a relationship with our Father. We want His will to be done, which is the best thing we can ask for. What do we learn about Jesus in this passage? That was our first point. We learned that He is in total control. We learned that He trusted in the Father. Second point, how does the knowledge of Jesus being in total control and trusting the Father changes our attitude towards him. Knowing the agony that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe the one practical question for us this morning is this. Who would ever want to be taken for granted? Or maybe let me rephrase it. How do you feel when you are taken for granted? When you are not properly appreciated as a result of maybe familiarity, or when something is assumed about you without you knowing, how do you feel about it? The truth is no one wants to be taken for granted, or maybe it's just me. And yet, all of us at some point take people for granted. Whether it is in our marriages, where I'm told men who are bad communicators, they always assume that, you know, she will understand that's how God created us. We don't talk more. Whether it's within our families where children assume that their parents are superhumans and they can be used and abused, as a punching ball, it doesn't matter. Whether it's in our workplace where there are assumptions between employees and employer and people take each other for granted. You see, the problem is taking each other for granted is a recipe of resentment. And yet, as believers... We take Jesus for granted. 
We have seen the agony that he went through in that garden as he was praying. We have seen how the innocent, sinless son of God would become sin and experience the separation from the father. Something that he had never experienced before and he will never experience. Why did he have to go through that? Because of you, because of me, because of our sinfulness nature. Yet, we still take him for granted. And the question once again is, do we love Jesus? Are we passionate about him? Do I love Jesus? You see, there are many ways we continue to take Jesus for granted. When, for instance, you in your life, you say, well, you are telling me that uh, this sin that is in my life is big. You don't want to know about that other person. Well, there's no small sin because it's because of that small sin that you are thinking of that Jesus was in agony. It's that sin that put him on that cross. Well, you might say, you know, what I did does not really matter. It's just a small thing compared to the bigger picture. Well, that small thing that is not right that you and me have done is the one thing that put Jesus on the cross that he was in an agony for. Well, I'm good enough to be accepted by God. I mean, my moral, everything I do is just perfect. Well, if you are good enough, Jesus did not have to go into that agony. Jesus didn't have to be separated from his father because you are good enough. I will find my own ways to approach God. Well, Jesus came because he knew you can't find your own way to approach God. He is the only way. And the only way for you to approach God is through him and what he had to endure on that cross. Do you believe God loves you? Do you want to grow in your relationship with him as a follower of him? As a redeemed family of servants on mission, we always say we are here to serve God and to serve one another. Well, serving God is good. We all want to serve God. Doing ministry is good. We want to be involved and grow God's kingdom. But the question is, do I still marvel at Jesus even when I'm serving, even when I'm doing ministry? You see, every time I serve, every time I do ministry out of duty and not marvel at Jesus, I'm taking Jesus for granted. And when I do that, I must pray and ask God to refresh my heart, to give me the zeal again of marveling at him, of acknowledging what he had to endure so that I can be able to serve him. We have seen God's heart in this passage. We can never say that God does not love us. We can never say God does not care for us. We have seen how he was willing to be separated from his son, He was willing to let his son drink the cup of wrath that you and me deserved. We have seen Jesus' heart in this passage. 
We have seen how he was submissive to his father's will. Something that was so unbearable. Something that has never happened to him before. To be separated from the father. He has been with the father for the whole eternity. But what was going to happen to him was he was going to experience the separation from the father because of our sins. So we have seen his heart. He loves us. He cares for us. What is your response to Jesus and his love for you? Thank you, Jesus, because you do not resent us even when we take you for granted. The question that I leave with us this morning that we will keep thinking of, do I love Jesus? Let us pray. Maybe take a few seconds as you continue to think about Jesus on the garden and what he had to endure, the agony he was in because he was going to be separated from the Father. He who was sinless, he who was perfect, but he had to become sin because of you, because of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are willing to drink the cup that we deserved. This cup that was so unbearable and that none of us could have drank to satisfy God's wrath. Thank you because we know that you love us. And we see that love as you drink that cup and die for our sins. And Lord, this morning we pray that you will help us to see you for who you are, to love you more than anything, to be willing to serve you because of what you've done for us. And maybe for someone who is here this morning, whose message of the Garden of Gethsemane is new, it does not make sense. We pray that, Lord, you'll open our hearts and minds so that we can see you as the one who was willing to die our death so that in you we can have life. And, Lord, we pray that even for this week we are starting, you will really work in our hearts. You will help us to love you. We cannot do that on our own. Holy Spirit, invade our lives. Help us to love Jesus. Help us to submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives. Help us to live for him wherever he has placed us. We commit all these things to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.